This episode of The Trial contains strong language. What's happened the next morning, Monday morning, Monday? Um, well, yeah, Mike didn't show up in the morning. Yeah, had a heart frost, on the, so I just presume that, oh, because it's a heart frost, that, um, yeah, um, he didn't, didn't show up for that. Well, as an expert, senior constable, the obligation on you is to provide impartial evidence. So I'm suggesting to you that you cannot see the front grill in the resolution from the 22nd. She just basically said fucking liar and then hung the phone up. From Stuff, this is The Trial. I'm Michael Wright. In May 2017, Michael McGrath, a 49-year-old builder from Christchurch, disappeared, almost without trace. His longtime friend, David Benbow, was later arrested and charged with his murder. Benbow pleaded not guilty and, in early 2023, stood trial. For nearly two months, reporters from the press newsroom in Christchurch were at the trial every day. Over this series, you'll hear all of the key evidence from the witnesses and the lawyers directly, although some recordings have been edited slightly for time and clarity. And because of court orders, we've distorted some voices and some exchanges are read by actors. We've made this podcast in real time. As I record this introduction, the trial isn't over and I don't know the verdict. So we've followed the strict rules around court reporting, reporting both sides of the case, the prosecution and the defence, fairly and accurately. Like any defendant, David Benbow is innocent until proven guilty. In the last episode, you heard about the alleged motive, the breakdown of David Benbow and Joanna Green's relationship and the new relationship between Green and Michael McGrath, which, the Crown says, enraged Benbow, who plotted a murderous revenge. Over the coming episodes, we're going to delve into the most important pieces of evidence for and against that alleged murder, selected from the testimony of more than 130 witnesses. Much of that evidence surrounds what David Benbow did or did not do around the time of Michael McGrath's disappearance. As you'll hear in episode four, detectives would take great interest in whether Benbow could account for his movements on the crucial Sunday, Monday and Tuesday. To refresh your memory, that's the 21st, 22nd and 23rd of May 2017, or the day before, the day of, and the day after McGrath's disappearance. The first voice you heard in this episode was Benbow's. It was a little hard to make out, but he was being quizzed by a police detective about whether McGrath had arrived at his house on the Monday. Later in this episode, we'll hear the prosecution theory about why this did happen, and the defence explain why it thinks there's no definitive proof. But before that, we need to jump back in time and address a couple of important things from the previous week, the week before McGrath disappeared. The first is from Tuesday, May the 16th, so a full week before McGrath's disappearance is noted. You might recall from the last episode that Joanna Green told the court that, after consulting a lawyer, 
she took her daughters and moved out of the family home she had shared with David Benbow. Green's voice here is distorted, in line with a court order. And on her advice, she said, get the children and leave. The day that Green packed up and left, she turned off the CCTV cameras on the property. Benbow had installed these about five years earlier to keep an eye on the boy racers who had been plaguing the neighbourhood with their fast and noisy cars. The cameras covered much of the property, but particularly the entrance. Some of the first police officers to visit Benbow after McGrath's disappearance noticed these cameras. When they asked Benbow about them, he said they weren't working anymore. A police digital forensics specialist named Brendan Sturgeon analysed this camera system and found it had been working up until that Tuesday, May the 16th. Here's Sturgeon at trial, responding to a question from Prosecutor Claire Bosher. Can you tell us about what happened on that day with the system? So the last video created on the DVR system stopped recording at 08.31 on the 16th of May 2017. Uh, there was no operational event log generated at this time, so it's likely that the DVR system was switched off at the wall or unplugged from power. The next activity Sturgeon found on the system was on Wednesday, May the 24th. In other words, that's when the power was restored to the system. Wednesday the 24th is the day after Michael McGrath was reported missing, and two days after the Crown claims Benbow killed him. This week-long period where the CCTV system was switched off, the Crown claimed, was a deliberate act by Benbow. With no cameras working, he would be able to execute his murder plot without being recorded. The second important thing that happened in the week before McGrath disappeared, according to the Crown, took place on Wednesday the 17th of May 2017. So that's the day after the power to the CCTV system was switched off. You might remember from our first episode that on this day, David Benbow showed up unannounced at Michael McGrath's home. It was the first time the two had seen each other in a few months. Certainly the first time they'd spoken since Benbow and Joanna Green split and Green and McGrath started seeing each other. That day, Benbow arrived at McGrath's house asking for a lift home because his car had broken down. The prosecution claimed this was a lie, that there was nothing wrong with Benbow's car. It was a ruse designed to enable Benbow to re-establish contact with McGrath. Now, the way the prosecution tried to prove this was a lie is a bit convoluted, but stick with me. The day after Benbow's first unannounced visit to McGrath, McGrath went to see Joanna Green. And, according to Green, he mentioned Benbow's visit, including that it had only come about because Benbow's car had broken down. McGrath also told Green, again, this is all coming second-hand from Green at the trial, that Benbow had said a guy named Adrian Reed was going to fix his car. Adrian Reed was a mutual friend of David Benbow and Joanna Green. He was the partner of a woman named Fleur Robinson, who was good friends with Green, and he and Benbow got on well too. So when Green couldn't find McGrath and suspected Benbow had done something, she remembered this broken-down car story. Here's Green and Adrian Reed separately giving evidence about what happened next. 
Remember, by court order, we've distorted Green's voice. We were driving from Michael's house and then I, I thought about Fleur's partners, Adrian Reid, who fixed my car, who David said had fixed his car. And I thought, I'll ring him and see if that was true. So that's I rang Fleur's cell phone number and I could hear him in the background. My partner, Fleur's phone rang and it was Joe on the phone and Joe asked to talk to me. And I said, Adrian, did you fix Dave's car on Wednesday? She asked me if I was working on David's car, which I replied no. I said, no, I haven't seen him for a while. I haven't seen, I haven't fixed his car. The conversation ended with Green assuming Banbo made the whole thing up. She just basically said fucking liar and then hung the phone up. The defence countered this two ways. First, it said it was yet another example of Joanna Green directing the police investigation toward Benbo. She was the one who exposed this apparent ruse, not the detectives. Second, the whole thing was based on her say-so. Benbo didn't give evidence at his trial, but the implication by the defence in the clip you're about to hear is that he never spoke to Adrian Reed about his broken-down car. So the link between Reed and the car is just Green relaying what she says McGrath told her. Here's Green being cross-examined by Cathy Bazier. You would agree that your only knowledge about the issue of the car breaking down and whether it was actually fixed or not and by who came from your conversations with Mr McGrath? That's right. Yeah. And at the time... What had happened to his car and who had fixed it was not important to you, was it? Not at that time, no. So at the time you you were talking to Mike about it, this was not an important detail, was it? No, it wasn't. And so you didn't write it down or anything like that, did you? That Adrian fixed his car, no. Yeah. No. So that brings us up to Sunday, May the 21st, 2017. The first of those three crucial days where David Benbow would later, in the eyes of the police, be far too vague about his movements. Let's look at the evidence. Benbow called in to see McGrath that Sunday afternoon. So this is a continuation of that reconnection between the two friends that had started a few days earlier, when Benbow dropped in talking about his broken car. On this Sunday, they watched some rugby highlights on TV and arranged for McGrath to be at Benbow's at nine the next morning to help move some railway sleepers on the lawn. After he got home that evening, Benbow used his laptop. The prosecution presented his Google history from that night as evidence. Here's police analyst Brendan Sturgeon, who also examined the CCTV cameras, testifying at the trial. Google Chrome was opened up in browser and at 9.15pm a Google search term the human body was searched. At 9.16pm another Google search uh, term what other organs of the human body was searched. A website was accessed at 9.16 which was the www.healthline.com the human body maps. At 9.17, another Google search for the human body. Then at 9.18pm, another website was accessed, autonomymasterclass.com. That's a misread. Sturgeon meant to say anatomymasterclass.com. And at 9.19pm, the system was shut down. This evidence wasn't disputed, but it is, as you may have noticed, 
entirely circumstantial. Google history isn't proof of murder. Now to Monday, May 22nd, 2017. The second crucial day, according to police, and the day of the alleged murder. Let's talk a bit about the timeline of that morning. One claim made by the Crown is that McGrath, famously reliable among his friends, did in fact go round to Benbow's house as requested, ready to help him move those railway sleepers. And, here's the crucial bit, the Crown says McGrath made it to Benbow's by 9 o'clock that morning. The Crown is confident of this because there are three separate types of evidence that support their theory. Power usage at McGrath's house before and after 9am, CCTV footage of a car similar to McGrath's seen travelling a likely route between his place and Benbow's, and a witness who claimed to have seen two men resembling McGrath and Benbow outside Benbow's property about 9am. First, the power usage. McGrath got up that morning and had a cup of tea and a bowl of Weetbix for breakfast. When police later searched his house, they found a tea bag in the bin and an empty bowl and mug in the sink. McGrath didn't own an electric jug, so he boiled the water for his tea with a saucepan on the stove. The Crown claimed that power usage data from McGrath's home showed that this happened between 8.30 and 9am, before his appointment at Benbow's. After 9am, it claimed, the power usage suggested that no one was home. I stress claimed here because the power usage at Michael McGrath's house on the morning of Monday, May the 22nd, 2017, became a strangely fascinating part of this trial. It was important because it was the first step in the prosecution narrative for the alleged murder it argued happened that day. Michael McGrath, at home making breakfast between 8.30 and 9am, fitted that theory. Any significant subsequent usage would point to someone being home after 9am, and the theory would then collapse. To start with, the Crown called Catherine Mace, an investigation liaison officer with Genesis Energy. This was in week three of the trial. Mace told the court that McGrath was considered a low consumer, didn't use much power. Between 8.30 and 9 on that Monday morning, he used one kilowatt of electricity. By court order, we've distorted Mace's voice here. Uh, That would indicate that somebody has got up, turned on lights, and I understand he had a pot for hot water to make a cup of tea, coffee, and possibly turned on a, a light as well. Pretty basic stuff. Mace then talked about the three half-hour periods after 9am, through to 10.30. In each of those three blocks, she said, power usage was never higher than 0.1 kilowatts. 0.1 is a very minute amount of power. It could even be what they call in a residual residual, um, sorry, can't say the word. Yeah, that, um, where, like, uh, it could be um, if he had a phone charger, maybe even a fridge, his fridge kicking in, because remember, that's still going. Yeah, so that could be that. Again, straightforward enough. The difference in usage before and after 9am supported the Crown theory that that was about the time McGrath left home. 
But it turned out it wasn't that straightforward. Because about three weeks after she gave this evidence, long after the trial had moved on from any evidence about power consumption at Michael McGrath's house, Catherine Mace was back on the witness stand, admitting that she'd made a mistake. Here's Mace being questioned by prosecutor Barnaby Hawes. Remember, we've distorted Mace's voice. Now, your evidence was that interval 19 related to power consumption between 8.30 and 9. Is that right? That's right, yes. Now, have you subsequently made some further inquiries? Uh, yes, I have. I had it confirmed that it actually is the time period from 9 to 9.30. Okay. So that interval 19 is the time 9 to 9.30. That's the power consumption at 53 Chequets Ave. That's correct. Mace is now saying that that morning power spike at Michael McGrath's address, that half-hour period where a full kilowatt of energy was consumed, was actually between 9 and 9.30, not between 8.30 and 9. So the evidence did not support the Crown theory McGrath was home before 9 and away from home after 9, based on power usage. Mace told the court she'd sent emails to police, apologising for her mistake. Defence lawyer Mark Corlett KC made a lot of this. Michael McGrath couldn't be at home after nine and be at David Benbow's helping him move the railway sleepers. She was adamant when that proposition was put to her, no, I'm right about the time. Certainty from an expert. And what do we have now? The entire premise of the Crown case was flawed. Mr McGrath did not leave before 9. He was still there making his breakfast between 9 and 9.30. Can't be in two places at the same time. From this point, things got very complicated. But stay with me. Once Mace had copped to her mistake, she told the court that the one kilowatt of power used between 9 and 9.30 could have been someone at home, but it also could have been the hot water cylinder heating up, something that might happen whether anyone is actually present in the house or not. The defence didn't buy this and suggested Mace was just trying to help the Crown recover lost ground because of her error. Then the defence called its own electricity expert. He dismissed the hot water cylinder explanation because energy company records from that Monday showed that power to McGrath's cylinder was turned off between 8.26am and 9.27am. Power suppliers do this sometimes to ease demand during peak periods. The important thing here was, if there was no power to McGrath's hot water cylinder until 9.27am, then the 9.930 spike couldn't have been the cylinder heating back up. More likely, someone was home using power. But that still wasn't the end of it. Because the Crown then produced evidence showing that actually, the hot water heating was restored to McGrath's address a little bit earlier, by 9.11am. Plenty of time for the 9 to 9.30 spike in power to include the hot water cylinder heating up again. For the jury listening to all this, it must have seemed like one of those never-ending tennis rallies well, you can't believe each player keeps hitting the ball back. The prosecution and the defence both somehow manage to keep their arguments alive. Except those tennis rallies get more and more exciting and, you know, someone wins at the end. 
Here, both arguments petered out, and the whole thing finished in an underwhelming draw. The upshot was, there was no way of telling from the power usage data whether someone was or was not in Michael McGrath's home after 9am. A remarkable and disturbing tale, well-structured and told, it was both riveting and informative. Black Hands, the story of the most divisive murder case in New Zealand's history. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for Black Hands. Very interesting. Sad that so many can be influenced by one little bastard. The Commune. Free love, group therapy and a guru called Bert. What could possibly go wrong? Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for The Commune. The second plank of the Crown's timeline placing McGrath at Benbow's house by 9am was just as heavily contested. This was the CCTV footage that the Crown argued showed Michael McGrath driving to David Benbow's property by 9am. Benbow has always insisted McGrath never showed up. Here he is in a police interview. The first voice you'll hear is a detective. What's happened the next morning on Monday morning? Monday? Um, well... Yeah, Mike didn't show up in the morning. Yeah, had a hard frost, on the, so I just presume that because oh, it's a hard frost that um, yeah, um, he didn't, didn't show up for that. Benbo said it was a hard frost that Monday morning, and he presumed his friend hadn't showed up because of the cold. The Crown, of course, said Michael McGrath had shown up, and it based this on the CCTV footage of what appeared to be McGrath's old Subaru station wagon travelling the likely route between his house and Benbow's, at about the right time. McGrath and Benbow both lived in Hallswell in southwest Christchurch, about a five-minute drive from each other. McGrath was on Checkets Ave and Benbow on Candies Road. Benbow's own CCTV cameras, which we've talked about already, weren't working that day but the Crown argued that two others did capture McGrath's car driving the most likely route to Candy's Road. One of these cameras was a private CCTV on Wales Street, not far from McGrath's house. The other was from the corner of Oak Ridge Street and Nichols Road, about midway between the two houses. This camera was actually in the car park of the Hallswell New World supermarket, and it was quite a long way from that corner, about 150 metres. At 8.54am on Monday, May the 22nd, 2017, a car resembling McGrath's blue Subaru station wagon passed by the Wales Street camera. A minute later, it was caught on the supermarket camera, turning right out of Oak Ridge Street and heading down Nichols Road, towards Candies Road. This, the Crown argued, was Michael McGrath, heading to David Benbow's place as planned. All this evidence was presented in court by Senior Constable Danny Shah. Shah had spent hours poring over the CCTV footage. He established likely drive times between the cameras and compared it to what he knew to be McGrath's Subaru on other camera footage. Here's Shah talking in court about the Wales Street footage from the Monday morning. The other voice you'll hear is Prosecutor Barnaby Hawes. I exhaustively reviewed the footage and believe that the vehicle in the footage has the same attributes and is consistent with a blue 1994 
Subaru Legacy Station Wagon. In terms of its consistency with Mr McGrath's vehicle? It had a distinctive front grille and headlights. It had roof rails. It had the non-standard five-spoke mag wheels. It had the high-mounted rear spoiler. And it had a bonnet scoop. Also, the uh, window glass was not tinted. Shah had put the same kind of effort into analysing the supermarket camera footage. At 8.55.07am, a blue station wagon was captured on the New World Causal CCTV camera, turning right from Oakridge Street into Nichols Road and out of camera sight. I believe that this vehicle was a blue station wagon with attributes consistent with that of a blue 1994 Subaru station wagon. Now, you heard Senior Constable Shah qualifying his opinion there, but it's worth reiterating. This was not a definitive ID of McGrath's Subaru. There was no CSI-style video grab of a blurry number plate, miraculously enhanced to show that it matched McGrath's plate. This was a car that Shah and the Crown believed was consistent with what they knew McGrath's car looked like, and with those other video comparisons. The defence went hard on this. Its own expert, a former cop named David Horsburgh, said the footage was low quality, far away, and affected by sunstrike. The car in question even appeared to be, quote, dirty brown in colour, rather than blue. It was so poor, Horsburgh said, it wasn't enough to conclude that the car was consistent with McGrath's. The prosecution maintained that it was. Here's Shah and Defence Counsel Kirsten Gray having a difference of opinion about a car's front grille. Gray talks first. Well, as an expert, Senior Constable, the obligation on you is to provide impartial evidence. So I'm suggesting to you that you cannot see the front grille in the resolution from the 22nd. The resolution is not great. And you cannot see the front grille. I can see a front grille. You can see a front grille, but you can't see a front grille that is consistent with Mr McGrath's, can you? I believe the shape of the grille is consistent with Mr McGrath's car. You cannot see, in terms of resolution, a grille that is consistent with Mr McGrath's, can you? I believe I can. This went on and on, but it really boiled down to this. Yes, there was a car in the CCTV footage on May the 22nd at about the right time to put McGrath at Benbow's place by 9am. Yes, it was about the right colour and shape to be McGrath's Subaru legacy and appeared to have some of the same characteristics. But there was no way to be certain that it was actually his car. The third plank in the Crown case putting McGrath at Benbow's property was an eyewitness. This witness was crucial because if he was right, then David Benbow was lying when he said McGrath never showed up. The witness was a Littleton port worker named Stephen Robinson. Robinson had finished an overnight shift at the port that morning, and his route home took him down Candy's Road, past Benbow's property. Throughout the trial, Candy's Road was described as semi-rural. Benbow's nearest neighbour lived several hundred metres away. There were tall, thick hedges lining the roadside either side of his front gate. And the paddock opposite his house was used to graze horses. So while it was considered part of Hallswell, 
Driving down the road really did feel like you'd left town and were out in the country. Stephen Robinson left work at Littleton Port about 8.30 that Monday morning. Actually, that departure time of 8.30 will be heavily challenged, and we'll come back to it. But 8.30 will do for now. Here's what Robinson said he saw on Candy's Road that day. You'll hear an actor reading for Robinson, and then one for prosecutor Barnaby Hawes. I was just travelling along Candy's Road and I was slowing down for the junction. Basically, I saw two men talking on the roadside and there was a blue Subaru parked at the junction. So, can we just start with the two men? Yeah. Can you describe them? Well, one had a red T-shirt on, black sleeves showing through. I remember thinking at the time it must be a Kiwi thing to wear his T-shirt on the outside. And the other man, he had his back to me. He had a dark jumper on and, yeah, he was a bigger, heavier built man. So, just focusing on the first male that you described, so you mentioned his clothing or his top clothing. What was he wearing on his bottom half? I think he was wearing jeans. Can you remember what colour? I think they were blue, I think so. It was just quick as I was driving past. But I most remember the top because his T-shirt was on the outside. Robinson went on to describe the second man as heavier set. He had greying hair and was wearing a dark-coloured woolen jersey. He was sure, he said, that the blue car he saw was a Subaru. He remembered it was parked at an awkward angle, and his son had once owned a similar car. Most of the dispute around Robinson's evidence focused on the timing. Did he see whatever it was he saw on May the 22nd at about 9am? Robinson didn't come forward with his sighting until a couple of weeks after McGrath disappeared, and he didn't give a formal police statement until a few months after that. Even then, he was pretty loose on the details. That first statement put his sighting at about 12.30pm on either the 21st, so that's the Sunday, or the 22nd. In a second statement, he refined his sighting to about 10am and definitely on Monday the 22nd. He'd looked at a Littleton Port logbook and saw that he finished a job about 930 which would have put him at Candy's Road on his way home by 10. In fact, the first time Robinson ever put the sighting at 9am on the 22nd was at the trial. He'd come to settle on that time, he told the court, because he knew the sighting was on the last day of a four-day shift, the 22nd, and he had looked at another port record for that day that showed a boat was secured at 8.31am. That gave him time to finish up, get in his car, and be at Candy's Road by nine. The defence did not let these vagaries slide. Here's a reproduced exchange between defence counsel Mark Corlett and Robinson. The actor for Corlett speaks first. You said in your evidence that you think you were at Candy's around 9am, correct? Yes. Do you agree with me that this is the first time that you have said that you would have been at Candy's around 9am? Yes. Because it's not something you told the police in your statement of 12 November, is it? Not according to my statement, no. And it's not something that you told the police on the 28th of December, is it? No. And it's not something that you told the police during your video interview with them? And the video interview was highly focused on trying to narrow down the time. Yeah, it seems that way, yeah. You've told us this morning, for the first time, remembering back six years 
that you think you were there around 9am, correct? Yes. Mr. Robinson, is this an example of you, six years after the event, trying to fit your evidence into the Crown theory? No. Because there's no way you could have been at Candy's Road by 9am on the Monday, is there? Yeah. Yep, is that, yep, I'm confident? Yes, I'm confident. Yep, it's possible? Yes, it's possible. Okay, well, it's possible. As well as Robinson's evidence that he'd left work about 8.30, there was also some CCTV footage of what might have been his car, captured close to Candy's Road at about 9am that morning. I won't go into this because it was contested much like the CCTV of what might have been Michael McGrath's car. Bottom line, the car investigators found on the footage might have been Robinson's, but they couldn't be sure. In a way, Stephen Robinson was a crucial witness for both sides of this trial. For the Crown, here was someone who could put Michael McGrath at David Benbow's property just before the alleged murder. That was huge. And the defence had to counter that. They spent a long time in cross-examination going over Robinson's timeline. The multiple statements, the changing times. In court, Robinson was sure. It was about 9am on the Monday. But this was never definitively proven. Next time on the trial, the police questioned David Benbow. Did you have anything to do with the disappearance? I have anything to do with the disappearance. Can you give me one good reason why I should believe you? You've been listening to The Trial, a stuff podcast. It was scripted and produced by me, Michael Wright, from the Press newspaper. Sound design, audio editing and mixing was by Connor Scott. Thanks to Kamala Heyman and Martin Van Bainen. You can listen to the full series via Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please follow the show and leave a review. It helps other people find it. For more great true crime listening, go to stuff.co.nz slash podcasts. If you liked listening to this pod, help us make more like this. Visit stuff.co.nz slash support. An airliner takes off from Auckland Airport on a sightseeing trip to Antarctica. A few hours later, all 257 people on board are dead. White Silence. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for White Silence.